You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.23, Duel in the Desert, Part 2. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and... I'm excited that this week we get to announce our Season 3 contest. Stay tuned for all of the details in just a moment. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and really wishing I were proud of these kids' teamwork in some other context than their work as child soldiers. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 431 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Solid Snack, and Kevin RT. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And special thank yous this week to Joe K and Marcus in Japan for the cards. We love getting to hear from listeners, and I love snail mail. Plus, Marcus sent us a couple of the Hello Kitty Gundam collab keychains, which are amazing. Remember that links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at gundampodcast.com support. We are excited to announce the launch of our Season 3 giveaway contest. If you've been following us for a while, then you know that we like to do a giveaway each year with the prizes picked to fit whatever Gundam we happen to be covering. Last year, we had a Valentine's Day-themed meme contest, and our listeners sent in dozens of heartwarming and hysterical entries. This year, we're holding a Gundam Haiku contest, and thanks to the generous people at USA Gundam Store who offered to sponsor the Gunpla for this year's giveaway, the prizes are going to be better than ever. Here are the rules. To enter, you need to write an original Gundam-related poem that fits the haiku format of three lines composed of five, seven, and five syllables, respectively. You can submit it by posting the poem on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, tagging us, Gundam Podcast, and including the hashtag Gundam Haiku. You can also enter by going to GundamPodcast.com slash haiku and submitting your poem using the form there. Your haiku should be all ages appropriate, and it should be spoiler-free. You can write about Gundam generally, but you should avoid referencing characters, plot points, factions, mobile suits, really anything specific that we haven't encountered yet in the podcast. You can enter one haiku per week from now until 11.59 p.m. New York Standard Time, March 7th, 2021. Once all entries have been collected, we will award four prize bundles. One winner will be chosen at random from all valid entrants. Nina and I will each pick our personal favorite entries, and the grand prize will be chosen, as always, by our patrons democratically. Now, I can't reveal everything that's going into our prize bundles just yet, but I can tell you that all four bundles will include... The complete Gundam Double Zeta on Blu-ray. So get those haiku in, because you do not want to miss this contest. And make sure you follow us on social media, where we'll be posting some of the entries we've received so far. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 25, The Face of Rommel, or Ronmeru no Kao. For research this week, I've got theories about names. Some might seem obvious, Some are more obscure, and at least one is a crab. But first, the nightly news is on in just a few minutes. Inside a bustling newsroom. Uh, Captain Eden's daughter, ma'am, here is the report from the team on Shangri-La. We are live in five minutes, people. Five minutes. Thank you. Let me see that report. 
Captain, the vending machines are out of Become a Monster canned energy beverage again. Again? We just refilled them last week. But we need the caffeine to get through our shifts. Maybe if you reduced our hours? That wouldn't be fair to all the past interns who worked themselves to death, would it? <sighs> no, Mum. But can we at least have some coffee while we wait for more Become a Monster? Excuse me? This coffee was grown exclusively for me on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, in the smoldering ruins of the Hymam Hotel's Nature Preserve and Ski Lodge. Only the most perfect coffee cherries were hand-selected, then partially digested by majestic Highlands giraffes. The beans cost 1,000 gilas a pound. Coffee is for executives. Interns drink energy beverages. If you're so desperate for caffeine, have a Lieutenant Pepper or something. <sighs> but they're all salty. Three minutes! Three minutes to air! Um, ma'am, if you could just look at the report on Shangalaw for just a moment. Oh, yes, of course. Captain, the satellite is back up and we are connected to Kiara soon. She is ready to go live whenever we want her. Just make sure that satellite link stays up this time. Two minutes! Uh, the, the Captain, uh, legal says there may be problems with our award-winning podcast, Principality. That's the one based on interviews with Quattro Bagina about his experiences in the Xeon forces during the war? <laughs> yes, ma'am, but now some people are saying there's no evidence that there ever was a Quattro Bagina in the Xeon forces. Tell Legal not to worry about it. I've never let the truth get in the way of a good story before, and I'm not about to start now. Ma'am, the report about Shangri-La? Right, right. I'm, uh, I'm afraid that... He got away? Yes, well, uh... You threw coffee in my face! Not even my own must. No metatextual references on company time. Just get down to the comms room and tell all our affiliate stations to be on the lookout for rogue newscaster Tom Thompson. Y yes ma'am. And someone get me another coffee! Going live in three, two... Good evening and welcome to NZC, the Neo Zeon channel. I'm Captain Nina Nina's daughter. Today's top story, investigative reporter Kiara Soon reports live from deep within the headquarters of secretive silicon crater technology firm Anaheim Electronics. Later in the program, I'll be joined by commanders Glemmy Toto and Mashima Sello for a roundtable debate to settle the burning question of our times, how many Lady Hamans is enough? And as always, Rakan Dakaran has more tips and tricks for staying in shape when you're trapped inside a spaceship. But first, are you already as angry as you can get, or only as angry as you've ever been so far? Let's find out. And now the recap for The Face of Rommel. Karaba finally contacts the Argama. They are coordinating an attack on Dakar from the north and the south. And while the Argama waits for further information, the Gundam team, Judo, El, Bicha, Mondo, Ino, Ru, and Puru, with the Double Zeta, the Zeta, the Mark II, and the Mega Rider, set off across the desert. In a nearby oasis town, a man in an old Xeon uniform his head covered in the local headscarf, rides a camel up to another Xeon soldier, standing guard. Rushing inside, he addresses himself to his commander, Rommel, informing him of the Axis takeover of the Federation Assembly and the arrival of Mineva Zabi. This is what Rommel and his men have waited and trained for over the past eight years. However, they've also received word of an Ayug ship nearby with a complement of Gundam mobile suits, and who better to take out this threat than Rommel Corps? They remove their own mobile suits from their hiding places, buried in sand dunes or under nets of palm fronds, and they assemble outside headquarters. One young soldier, Nikki, arrives with his wife and son clinging to him, begging him not to go. Rommel walks up and slaps Nikki, reprimanding him for his family's lack of discipline, and Nikki rushes into the ranks brushing off his family and asking them not to embarrass him anymore. The rest of the townspeople watch impassive as the Xeon soldiers move out. 
the Gundam team has broken down. Sand has gotten into the workings of the Hyakushiki, and they struggle to get it moving again. At the same time, Puru has locked everyone out of the Mega Rider, while she uses all of their drinking water to take a bubble bath. Between the glaring sun, the heat, the sand, and Puru, everyone is frustrated, and Judo decides to solve one problem at least. He'll take the Zeta Gundam and look for drinking water. Of course, the moment Puru sees him leave, she takes off after him in the Mega Rider, leaving the rest of the team behind. A scout for Rommel Corps spots the Mega Rider and Zeta Gundam and takes photographs and observations back to the commander. The trap is laid, and all that is left is to lure the Gundam into it. The other members of the Gundam team, starting to worry that Judo and Puru haven't returned, go in search of them, and find them at the same time that the bait, Nikki in a desert zaku, attacks and then retreats. As planned, Judo chases after him, and Puru, carrying all of the other suits on the Mega Rider, follows, lagging behind. Clearly inexperienced, Nikki seems to panic, sweating and fretting about why the Zeta Gundam doesn't catch him already, and calling out for cover fire even before he's reached the objective. When he finally arrives, the bombardment begins, mobile suits blanketing the area in missile fire from their hiding places in the dunes. Nikki is unable to get out of the way in time, and they do not wait for him. He is killed by friendly fire. Judo dodges these attacks but finds himself surrounded as enemy mobile suits emerge from the dunes all around him. The situation looks bleak until the rest of the Gundam team arrive, and they all work together to fight off Rommelkor. When the Zeta loses its footing in the shifting sand and falls, and Rommel looms over, ready to strike, Eno blasts the arm from the enemy mobile suit. The minefield trap batters them, but does no lasting damage, and it doesn't take the Gundam team long to destroy or incapacitate all of the Xeon mobile suits but one. Rommel remains, the terrified cries of his men ringing in his ears as he realizes how completely they've been defeated. Opening his cockpit, Judo peers out at the last remaining mobile suit, asking the pilot to surrender. There's no point in fighting on! In a rage, Rommel charges his mobile suit at the Zeta. All of the other mobile suits fire, and bits and pieces of Rommel's suit fly off, as if the suit is disintegrating. But it's still whole when it collides with the Zeta. Judo was able to close the cockpit in time and brace the Zeta, putting a beam saber through the charging mobile suit. With tears in his eyes, he confronts the enemy. This attack was absurd, reckless. What can this possibly accomplish? But Rommel cannot live with his defeat. After eight years of training, planning, and discipline to be beaten by a bunch of kids, it seems the world has passed him by, and he makes no attempt to eject from his mobile suit before the damage causes it to explode. In the Oasis town, the war leaves behind another widow, another son without a father, and the Gundam team continue on toward their destination as the sunset paints the desert sky. The way this episode opens, with Judo doing a little bit of quick narration setting up events that are going to transpire, gives the impression that this is going to be an episode just chock full of plot development, that there is going to be so much going on that there is no time to waste with setup. And the episode does not bear that out. As far as plot goes, it might be one of the thinnest episodes in Double Zeta so far. Which is funny. I really like this episode. I think it's a great one. But it's true. The thing that struck me is that most of the information that is conveyed to us there through Judo's narration could easily have been fitted into some dialogue among the kids where they're stopped in the desert. Well, and interestingly, when the kids are actually stopped in the desert and they're talking, not only do they not talk about their mission and their objectives, but they kind of talk about it as though their mission is unclear and they don't entirely understand why they've been sent out or why Puru had to come with them. It makes that intro sequence feel like something that was tacked on after the fact, potentially, which who knows, it might have been. Mm -hmm. 
It does give the impression of an episode that was not particularly well planned in terms of its structure and and the sequence of Mm -hmm. how it was all going to fit together. Like maybe there was an episode missing between the prior one and this one. Or they had like an extra half episode of story (laughs) that they had wanted to include and then couldn't. uh, Something like that. It's not like literally an island episode, but it has kind of the structure of an island episode. And when I say an island episode, I mean an episode that's really self-contained, like Kukuru's Doan's <laughs> Island in First Gundam is a perfect example of this. But, you know, these are a thing in anime throughout time because they go out into the desert and there's this little oasis and all of the characters who are introduced in this episode are also killed in this episode. So it essentially has no impact on the larger story except for maybe you know developing the characters a little bit before we move on from talking about the weird intro uh the animation of the intro is pretty poor quality the animation throughout the whole episode i think is actually pretty poor quality Uh, i quite liked a lot of the animation later in the episode but to be fair i think it's mostly uh backgrounds and some cool things about the setting not necessarily the animation. Yeah, when I say that the animation is not very good, I'm actually being very specific because I think the choreography and the layouts are good. The background animation is good. I think there's some very pretty stills, especially of the new mobile suits being, well, new old mobile suits being deployed by the Rommel team. But there's very little movement. Characters are often at least a little bit off model. And the mobile suits themselves are usually depicted in a sort of, you know, low detail kind of way. And that happens to the backgrounds sometimes, too. They get very, like, I guess the uh, reference in my head for a bad background is the scene from First Gundam when Iselina falls off the (laughs) gal and just, like, dies in the desert. And it's really poorly drawn. (laughs) Uh, And you you get some shots in this episode that kind of approach that. For me, the setting stood out as very important for this episode and for what I see as the significant themes or ideas of the episode. Some of the things that stood out to me were things like the heat distortion in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, As the camera pans over the desert, we get the like waves of hot air. The dunes, the plumes of sand as the mobile suits move through the desert. Mm -hmm. There's one bit later on when the uh, bazooka team under Rommel pops out of the desert, or at least the barrels of their bazookas pop out of the sand. And you can see some like sand blowing out of one of these uh, barrels. It's a really cool detail. The oasis town itself, the sunset at the end of the episode, the starry sky over the oasis town at the very end of the episode. I quite liked it. <laughs> I love the moment early on when they pull open the hatch on the Hyakushiki and a bunch of sand pours out. Because these mobile suits are not designed for this environment. They're totally out of their element, just like the Shangri-La teens. I was going to say, one of the... And possibly the primary theme of this episode is, I think, the contrast between the sort of home advantage and the fish out of water, the earthnoids and the space noids. The Rommel Corps are so well adapted to fighting in the desert, they can bury entire mobile suits and have those mobile suits still function perfectly. And like sand is notorious. It is a rare piece of machinery that you can plunge into sand, pull out again, and still have it work. Right. These are all mobile suits specifically built for the desert. There are desert-type Zakus, and then the Dwaj, which we haven't seen before, but is similarly specifically for this environment. They know how to set traps for this environment. They know how to hide in this environment, both using the sand to their advantage, but also the nets of palm fronds that they were using to hide their mobile suits. You know, they've adopted some of the local customs. They all wear the sort of like head covering. One of them looks very comfortable riding a camel. (laughs) And they're all very tan. They've been living in the desert for eight years and they've adapted in a whole bunch of different ways. Some of them are married to locals. We see Nikki appears to be married to a local woman and have a kid with her. And yet they are still space noids. Well, they're still foreign. Yes. I don't know that I would call them space noids anymore. 
that dichotomy between the kids from Shangri-La and the desert-adapted Rommel Corps is further complicated by the third presence of the actual local people. Who in a lot of ways are an extension of the story that we talked about last time, that they don't really have a horse in this race. Neither of these sides truly represent them. When Rommel Corps is getting ready to leave on this mission, the town's not cheering them, the town doesn't seem excited for them, the town is not waving them off. Everyone seems rather serious and impassive. Despite Ramokor having been here for eight years, they are still separate from the interests and the life and the... Well, they're parasitic. They're outsiders living in and off of and really endangering this oasis town without, it seems like, contributing to it in any meaningful kind of way. They've adopted some desert living characteristics, but they're still outsiders. Coming back to our spacenoid kids for a minute, in addition to not really having prepared their machines in any way to deal with the sand, and Hell's comment, I don't know anything about sand, we also get Pudu's behavior, which part of it is just hammering home that Pudu is very selfish. So, which so selfish. She is. But there's also an element of maladaption to the fact that she took a bath in all their drinking water in a desert. Yeah. Right? There's no part of her that understands that water is a scarce resource here (laughs) that needs to be carefully managed regardless of her usual, you know, habits or needs. All right. But absolutely, we have to give credit where credit is due. She had the forethought to bring an inflatable pool to use as a bathtub. And also various other bath implements. (laughs) She's just kind of got, she's got a thing about baths. Yeah, she has an obsession with baths. And I, God, I, is this just a cheap excuse to depict her in various states of undress or just a way to express her like selfish childishness or something else? I do wonder if the like obsession with baths, is that a known personality tick in Japanese culture? Like, is that a thing? People who are really into baths? Or Um, just like a childish thing, like certain kids get super into taking baths. I mean, in some ways, it betrays the privileged aspects of her life so far. Because going way back to research I did in the first season, remember, we're into the mid-80s now. More people would certainly have had baths at home. But some people still would not have had a way to take a bath at home. If you wanted to take a bath, you would have had to pay to go to a bathing facility And that probably wouldn't be something people did on the daily. The fact that she is accustomed to being able to bathe whenever she wants is a way to mark her privileged upbringing. Yeah, and this came up in the prior episode in the brief conflict between Puru and Elle around the conditions under which Puru was confined. Because Elle was like, you have a shower, that should be fine. And that might seem like nothing, but in the context you were just talking about, it does mark the class difference between these two women. Puru also marks for us something that I think is very significant. I hope they did it on purpose. But we get another moment of someone being like, why would you trust a spacenoid's map of the Earth? (laughs) You know, contrasting with the previous episode, why would you trust an aquatic mobile suit made by people who've never seen the ocean? And in that same conversation, Rather than calling them Earthnoids and Spacenoids, Puru refers to Earthnoids and Uchujin. Right. Which in the translation they say spacemen, but is also often just translated as alien. Yeah, that's a I think a much more common translation. If I encountered Uchujin in another context, I would automatically assume it meant extraterrestrial aliens. And literally the spacenoid kids are extraterrestrials, but it's still a funny way of thinking of them. But I think this is a a conscious acknowledgement of the fact that the more generations grow up out in the colonies, the longer the time span between that initial emigration from the Earth and current generations, the less that spacenoids and earthnoids have in common. And the terminology matters. The terminology of spacenoid and earthnoid makes them sound more closely related than perhaps they are. And the spacenoids are experiencing alienation from Earth. So it's natural to think of them kind of as aliens. 
And of course, this is reflected in the generational divide. Bright is like a decade older than these kids. He's like one generation ahead of them. And for Bright, the survival of the earth, the condition of the earth, these are things with real power and they motivate him to continue this fight for Ayug. But the Shangri-La kids couldn't care less about earth in the abstract. Maybe now that they've been there and seen how beautiful it is, that'll change their minds. But beforehand, Beecha didn't give one fig about the fate of the earth. Speaking of the generational divide, I want to talk about Nikki mm. from the Rommel Corps. One of the most interesting characters in the episode. My impression of Nikki is that he's quite young. I would say maybe Bright's age or younger even, mm -hmm. which would mean he was quite young during the One Year War and might not have seen that much combat, depending. I think that's probably true. And so in a lot of ways, he's a much more tragic character than Rommel because Rommel had already, you know, invested the entirety of his adult life in this thing. Nikki could maybe have gotten out of it if it hadn't been for getting stranded out in the desert with Rommel and Rommel's obsession. Yeah, I don't even think of Rommel as a tragic figure. Rommel is a pathetic figure, but Nikki's story is tragic. Now we know from back in First Gundam, from the text of those final episodes, they were rolling students into the army. They were putting teenagers in mobile suits and putting them on the front lines. So that's not exactly surprising. I'm sure that's what happened to Nikki. Uh, they call him an ensign, which is a very low rank. And then there's another officer in the Rommel Corps also, Callahan, who's also referred to as an ensign. In both cases, I assume that everything just sort of froze when the war ended. Yeah. No one has been promoted. Nothing has changed. Rommel has just like calcified in this desert position. Part of the reason I harp on Nikki's age is that for one, he's basically spent his entire adult life living in this village. He's married a local woman. You know, this is his life now. And perhaps the only thing that's kept him from it, from sort of accepting it and, and going into it wholeheartedly is Rommel Corps. And then his obvious lack of experience once the fighting actually starts. I know it's the desert and it's hot, but more than anyone else, he's pouring sweat when Judo takes off after him. He's completely overthinking what's happening. Like, why hasn't he caught me yet? Is he waiting for his buddies? Is he about to pounce on me at any moment? You know, he starts calling for backup really early. Once the other fire begins, he doesn't seem to know how to get out of the way in time. And this was a thing that made me wonder about if he might even be a local kid who got recruited rather than originally from Zeon, because, you know, we talked last time about locals being drafted into colonial military forces and then being given the most dangerous jobs. And Nikki has been given the most dangerous job. He has to lure the enemy by himself and then lure them directly into the trap, which then there's a chance of him getting caught in. And he does. Mm hmm. I think that's just an age thing. The episode shows us that Rommel is perfectly willing to sacrifice any or all members of his team uh, for the sake of victory. Nikki is merely the first one, the most readily sacrificed. It speaks to the mythology around the Gundam within their universe, within their world, that he doesn't hear that Axis has landed and think, oh, we should go join up with the main force. He thinks, it's been eight years and I'm finally going to get vengeance on the Gundam. <laughs> mm -hmm. That the Gundam has this position as having been almost single-handedly responsible for the Federation's victory. And so, you know, from that mythic position, it becomes uh, a target almost bigger than AUG itself. You have to imagine Rommel stewing in the desert for eight years, thinking about how Zeon lost the war and how he can continue the fight. Because it's clear that this is not Rommel coming out of retirement, right? He has been waiting, training, preparing, believing that something like this was going to happen, that Zeon was going to rise again, and that he would have an opportunity to be a part of the war. And in all of those years, you have to think he was imagining what would have happened had he had a chance to fight with the white base. If they had gone to Africa instead of going across Asia, or landed in Africa instead of landing in North America, could the war have gone differently 
if it had been Rommel fighting Amuro instead of Rambaral. There is a visual motif that makes a recurring appearance throughout the episode, and it's a very old grave out in the desert on the dunes with what looks like a helmet hanging from it. We return to this image again and again. We get it at the very beginning of our introduction to Rommelkor and the Oasis town. We get it when they leave on the trap. We get it again at the end of the episode. I saw this visual of the grave as coming back to the absurdity of war, the endless cycling of grievances and loss, and more grievances and more loss. Yeah, the way Nikki's widow cries at this old grave at the end of the episode makes the grave feel like it's not for any specific person, but a kind of representational grave, a grave for all those lost to the war. And we see his orphan son as well. Well, not orphan, he has a mother, but we see his son as well. It felt like a return in some ways to the ideas of first Gundam. How many widows and orphans are you making? And Judo has brought up, you know, who's going to cry for you when you're gone? And Rommel has this line when he realizes that they've been beaten, you know, regardless of all of their preparation, their years of working together, their careful planning and intel, and still they've been beaten by this relatively small group of children. And he thinks to himself, you know, while we were here, time passed us by. Everything here in the desert feels like it stayed the same, but the world kept moving without us. They're just a bunch of living fossils. And the grave is only one visual signifier of how they are trapped in the past. All of the Xeon flags, the Xeon uniforms, even the scene of Rommel being shaved by his adjutant, that feels like it harkens back all the way to World War II, as of course does his name. And the, the old war cry, that the Xeon soldiers raise. Did you notice when the first of the Xeon soldiers rolls in to tell Rommel the news, as he's leaving, he remembers to say it. Mm -hmm. And it almost sounds a little hoarse, like he's it's been a long time since he's said it and he's uncomfortable or he doesn't quite yeah. <laughs> have the cheer in him anymore. And Rommel's response is just like, oh, right. <laughs> Rommel says it very casually. And then when they're going off on the mission and they all chant it together, it feels so pathetic. It feels sad. It feels lackluster. Uh, when we encountered it in First Gundam with huge hordes of soldiers cheering, full of passion and hope, it was scary. It was legitimately ominous. And now it's just a like a pathetic bunch of old men living in the desert, stuck in the past, rushing off to their doom. It's like in the real world when you encounter uh, neo-Nazis raising the old banners of defeated empires and chanting the old slogans that they used to use to hail their now dead tyrants. It's just so pathetic. You mentioned Amaro and Rambaral earlier, but let's make explicit. The first fight between Judo and Rommel here is very similar to the fight between Amuro and Ra the first fight. First fight or no, the second fight? One of the fights between Amuro and Rambaral. Down to the kinds of taunts that are happening. You know, it's these grizzled old veterans telling these young guys, even with your fancy new suit, your timing is bad or you're not that skilled at fighting. Well, and one of the theories for where Rambaral's name came from is that it might have been based on General Rommel's name. And of course, this guy is just explicitly, is just explicitly named. named after Rommel. To get even more explicit, his full name is Desert Rommel. What? Desato Ronmeru. Are we sure it's not Desert Rommel? <laughs> you know, that's plausible. Except that in that case, I would expect to see at least one scene of him eating an ice cream parfait. We come to Judo's final confrontation with Rommel, which before we talk about what they say and do, I want to talk about how it's animated because I really liked how they did this. The suicidal charge with the bright light behind it and the pieces of the mobile suit sort of peeling away, disintegrating away from the main body as it comes up on Judo, as all the other Gundams are firing. 
Loved it. Having defeated all of the other mobile suits, we don't know that everyone from Rommel Corps is dead, but that's sort of the implication. Judo is looking at this one last standing mobile suit and saying, there is no point in continuing to fight. We've clearly beaten you. There's no way you can beat us. As we've seen time and again from Judo, he feels a lot of people throw their lives away needlessly. You know, we see him be reckless, but that has more to do with a feeling of invincibility on his part, a confidence that he can get himself out of any situation than uh, a carelessness of his life, which is what we see from a lot of other people. And he does not understand it. He cannot conceive of why a person would be willing to die for an abstraction or even would necessarily die to save others, as it was the case for Cecilia, when he thinks, like, but maybe you could have come up with a way to do that and not die. <laughs> he describes Rommel's actions here at the end. Uh, in the translation, they say reckless. The word in Japanese is mucha, which can also mean absurd, which I think is maybe better <laughs> as a translation that to judo, this suicidal charge at the end, this proverbial going down with the ship, because this is Rommel saying, like, the thing I've devoted my life to uh, is finally over. I failed. All of my subordinates are dead. I have no reason to live anymore. Uh, and that to judo is absurd. But to Rommel, continuing to live would be absurd. <laughs> to have given everything he had, eight years of his life, all this planning, all this effort, and they lost. He, he did the opposite of reckless, and it wasn't enough. And again, we see Judo crying, and he, he's done this several times now, and it's not... We almost never see him cry in the way that Amuro or Camille cried, I remember a lot of big, angry sobs. With Judo, he seems calm, but deeply sad, and tears streaming down his face, even as he talks calmly to himself and sort of to this person who has died about, like, why would you do that? For Judo, those kinds of risks are only worthwhile if they might accomplish, like, an obvious objective. And even then, he finds the risk of one's life questionable, whereas... We see a lot of older people in various situations who have non-obvious or like personal mental and emotional objectives. Well, Judo is young. Yeah. <laughs> Judo sees an infinite future before him, the infinite possibilities. But somebody like Rommel, not just because of his age, but because of what has specifically happened in his life, but also because of his age, Rommel is completely committed to this one course of action with one goal that he can identify. Destroy Gundam, obtain Xeon hegemony. And now that that's failed, with all of his preparations, all eight years of his work failed, Rommel doesn't see a future. It's that total inability to perceive each other's perspectives. And, and while it's not necessarily laid out in these terms, it harkens back to some of those samurai era ideas of a more honorable death. That having incurred the, the dishonor of this horrible failure, the only way out left to him is an honorable suicide or a, a death in battle, better yet. In a bunch of small ways, Rommel in this episode helps to expand our understanding of the Universal Century world. For instance, early on, he's depicted uh, holding up and peering at some sort of medal he's won possibly even the Xeon Cross that was referenced briefly back in First Gundam, or maybe just some other medal for his uh, successful war doing down on Earth. It's also clear that he's not totally cut off. He is getting intelligence from the outside world. When his scout says the Argama's mobile suit team is moving through the desert, it's Rommel who makes the connection and says, ah, Gundams are coming. And later, when they first spot the Zeta, he refers to it as a Zeta type, which tells us both that he's seen pictures of something that looks like the Zeta. It also tells us there are other mobile suits out there based on the Zeta. We haven't seen them. We might never see them, but they're out there. Spoiler alert, we might see them. <laughs> it's a one-off little moment, but I was reminded of the trend that I noticed early on in Double Zeta, 
of people attributing certain thought processes and uh, actions to other people just because it fits with how they think of the world. When they get the photographs of the Mega Rider, he thinks and tells his subordinates, oh, maybe they specially modified it for desert use. They didn't put anywhere near that much thought into it. That's what he would do. That's what he would see as logical. And so he's attributing it to the other side. He doesn't have any evidence for that. That's just him doing like we all do to some degree and attributing thoughts and actions and feelings to other people based on ourselves that we don't have evidence for. Yeah, it's funny. These Earthside episodes really emphasize this theme of adaptation to local circumstances that, you know, in Gundam goes back to the idea of the space noid, the idea of the new type, the idea that going out into space will allow people to develop in new ways. Here it's inverted. Going into the desert forces these space noids or these aliens to adapt to this other hostile environment. We also get another piece of lovingly portrayed, I assume, contemporary technology in the Pentax camera that gets used by the scout. It looked like it might have uh, some sort of automated zoom function because he's not rotating the lens to adjust the zoom. He's pushing some kind of button on the body of the camera itself, and it's adjusting the lens. Well, and that huge, long telephoto lens, if you look closely at it, you will see that it actually has the word auto written on it. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes me curious. Was that the state-of-the-art, cutting-edge technology for cameras at that time? We will put that on our list of research ideas. Before we move on to lighter subjects, I do want to point out what happens when Nikki shows up for the mustering, and his wife and his child are both clinging to him, begging him not to go on the mission that will ultimately result in his death. Uh, and Rommel comes over, and Rommel smacks Nikki because his family is showing undisciplined and indecorous amounts of emotion. And after this, Nikki throws off his wife and he snaps at her in a, a similarly hard-hearted kind of way. And this, I think, shows one of the things that Tomino is really interested in exploring, and it's the ways that systems condition behavior and the ways that Rommel, as a leader in this very hierarchical, disciplined military context, projects those traits onto his soldiers. And the influence, not just of Rommel on the Rommel Corps, but of the Rommel Corps as an entity, as an organization on its own members, causes them to behave in certain ways. It changes their behavior. And it's really corrosive to this family dynamic that Nikki has with his wife and child. That's interesting. I had a very different interpretation of that scene that had more to do with how the scene highlights how long it's been since they have actually seen combat. Because the vibe I get is that Nikki's wife has never sent him off into dangerous combat before, not once. For, for her, this thing that he does is almost like playing at soldiers, right? It doesn't feel real. It's not tied to any real conflict. He's never been in any real danger. She and their son have never had to send him off, wondering if he will ever come back. This is a brand new experience and one which she may have thought she would never actually have. That makes me wonder what life has actually been like for these guys in the desert for the past eight years. Were they drilling and training constantly? Or was this just like a two weekends a month kind of thing? I sense some inconsistency in the show with regard to that because Rommel gives the impression of having been drilling and training and keeping up high discipline this whole time. But you can't do that for eight years. That doesn't work. You would have had so many deserters <laughs> um, and people just peeling off and leaving because, you know, eight years with a completely indefinite future... Uh, is not something that most people are going to stick with. They're not all obsessives like Rommel. And so I don't think he could have had that kind of intense discipline all the time and have kept this group together for the length of time that he says he's kept it together. It felt really good to see some teamwork from the Gundam team. 
I often lament that the show doesn't portray much teamwork, much group tactics. Occasionally they do. It often doesn't seem very effective and breaks down immediately into one-on-one fights. But here we see Bicha calling out some tactical moves. We see uh, Eno save Judo. I have a bone to pick about that, but we'll cover that in a moment. All right. Well, I, I was just going to say I thought it felt good. Actually, physically, like I had a moment of like, yes, they're working together. They're all looking out for each other. And I do not want to take that away from you. And in some ways that's contrasted with how well Rommelkor works together. But the Gundam team has much less of a clear leader, right? It's more of a the whole group working together for all that occasionally one person or another will say, okay, let's do this. Or, oh, you should... Leave me to handle this situation and you go help so-and-so. It's more distributed. Yeah, it's like an (laughs) anarcho-Gundamist collective. Indeed. So what's your problem with Eno and Judo in that scene? Who is piloting the double Zeta? Oh, did they mix it up? Yes. Because (laughs) earlier, when the mobile suits are walking through the desert, it's Rue piloting the double Zeta. Then it's Eno saving the day a few minutes later. And then later, they have L with Puru in the Mega Rider. But she doesn't start out in the Mega Rider. Originally, the Mega Rider is Bicha and Mondo. And Puru. And L is in the Mark II. Like, well, consistency. Come on. So I agree that it's a little confusing in this episode. But remember, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about how we actually thought it was cool that it wasn't just about, oh, this is my mobile suit. Mine. Possessive. It's more like, here are all of our tools, and we're all going to share them. I agree. That's cool. They need to be consistent about it, and they need to give L the Hyakushiki. Uh, they also gave everybody some wacky new outfits and uh, new hairstyles wacky. for some of them. They're fashionable. Some of it's very fashionable. I question Mondo's shorts with suspenders and bow tie. Questionable, yes, but I have seen people wearing that outfit. They also have Eno in some shorts. Mondo is in much more of a, like, oversized, loosely structured suit kind of thing with a t-shirt and a tie. I think he's actually wearing a mesh tank top. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Wow. And a tie. Uh, a bunch of them are wearing clear visors. I was curious about that. Um, why do they have the clear visors? I would expect that that would not do the job of shielding your face from the sun. Right. And yet their faces are drawn in shadow as though the visors were shielding them. Maybe they're future visors. <laughs> Elle has her hair up in sort of a ponytail more at the top of her head. Uh, Rue sporting a classic side pony. Elle's shirt is asymmetrical. The straps on her tank top are two different styles. And then Rue is wearing a cool sort of like bolero length harnessy vest thing that is pretty neat. And a bunch of them are wearing sandals. <laughs> they had fun with the outfits is what yeah. I'm saying. I also just love the detail of Pudu stopping to pull on her shoes when Judo is like, you need to make a run for the Mega Rider. Oh, I thought that was brilliant. She's like, okay, and she stops, and he's like, hurry. And she's like, I am hurrying. I have to put on my shoes. She doesn't say that last part, but that's the feeling. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, Rommel, how's it feel to have wasted eight years of your life carrying water for a bunch of dead tyrants, only to get wiped out by half a dozen teens with attitude? Seems like it didn't feel good. And now the research on uh, possible origins for names from Gundam Double Zeta. It's been a while since we last did a roundup of the names that have shown up in Gundam and their possible origins, so let's now dive in for a rapid-fire reference review. These are all based on what I would characterize as informed speculation. One of the great challenges in researching Gundam at this stage is that so much has been written about First Gundam. Its development, its staff, its inspirations, theories, interviews, magazine articles. Even in English, you can find penetrating articles from scholars and brilliant think pieces from fans. But for later productions, for Double Zeta, 
Often the best we can manage is rumor, innuendo, and tidbits of poorly sourced common knowledge. So I'm going to tell you my ideas, and I'll explain how I got there. First up, Neo Zeon's main line of grunt mobile suits, the Gaza series. We met the basic Gaza C type back in Zeta Gundam when it made up the bulk of the Axis forces at the end of the Grips conflict. The Gaza D type saw action on Shangri-La, piloted by Pampa, Wyme, and Vian of the Gaza Storm team. Then, most recently, there was the Gazaum, a successor to the Gaza D, piloted initially by Gotten and then by some of his ill-fated subordinates in the Endra Corps. The name Gaza already fits into a lineage of two-syllable-long names for grunt suits that goes back to First Gundam and includes the Zaku, the Gufu, the Domu, the Jimu, and, of course, the Nemo. But beyond that, the name Gaza suggests two possible associations. First, it could be a reference to the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian territory that was occupied by Israel after the 1967 Six-Day War and remained under Israeli military control when Double Zeta was made. This would not be the first time that Tomino looked to this region for inspiration. Remember the city Amman on the moon, and remember also the role that the real-world Amman, which is in Jordan, played in the guerrilla war by Palestinian fighters against Israel. Those Palestinian fighters were called Fedayeen, and while we're on the subject, remember that the Gabflay's rifle was called a Fedayeen rifle. So it's not like taking the name Gaza from the Gaza Strip would be unprecedented. And this possibility raises a second question, one that has knocked around in the Gundam fandom for decades without ever producing a satisfactory answer. And that question is, is Zion meant to evoke the name Zion, the Hebrew term for Jerusalem specifically, Israel more generally, and which is used broadly as a term for a paradise or a promised land? The anglicization Zion obfuscates this a little bit, because in the original Japanese, Zion is written Jion, while Zion is written Shion. One critic, Otsuka Eiji, has gone so far as to say that one of Gundam's main themes is the conflict over a promised land, and that it directly borrowed the constellation of problems around Palestine and Israel for its setting. Other critics looking at it don't think it's quite so clear as all that. And the problem of what all of this means, or if it means anything, is only compounded by the virulent anti-Semitism that was rampant in Japan and Japanese media throughout the 1980s. So now, having thrown all of that out onto the table, and having done nothing to clean it up, let me move quickly on to the other competing possibility for the Gaza's name origin. Crabs. Specifically, the blue crab, or the swimming crab, the most fished crab in all of the world, and which is named in Japanese, Gazami. Supporting evidence for this includes the fact that, in its mobile armor mode, the Gaza C looks a bit like a space crab, as does the Gaza D. What's more, Gazami uses antiquated, outdated kanji. And it would not be the only Neo-Zeon mobile suit to take its name from some outdated kanji. The Bawu even has the archaic kanji from which it took its name written right on it. As for the Gazaum, which kind of breaks this pattern, its mobile armor mode doesn't look like a crab. But the Zaum part of its name, or Zomu in Japanese, introduces another possibility because, you see, Zomushi is the word for a weevil. And while the resemblance may not be as strong as the crab to Gaza connection, I think you can see the Zomushi, or the weevil, in the Gazomu, if you squint, turn your head a bit, and really want to see it. Mobile space crab, or hotly contested Palestinian territory. It could be neither. For that matter, it could be both. Next up, the Gallus J, 
the first mobile suit piloted by Mashima, and the first new Neo Zeon model to appear in Double Zeta. By now, it's moved from ace prototype to mass-produced machine, and we've seen Gallus suits doing everything from defending Axis to occupying Dakar. This is one where I spent a lot of time fruitlessly tracking down leads with no satisfying results, until one day, totally out of the blue, it hit me. So first I looked into Gallus as the Latin term for an inhabitant of Gaul, and then I considered the Gaelic culture of Ireland, Scotland, and the Isle of Man, which we have reason to think that Tomino researched for Aura Battler Dunbine a few years prior. And for a moment there, I thought I really had something, because the Gallus has that single red left hand, and I thought maybe that was related to the legend of the bloody red hand that is associated with Ireland in general and the O'Neill clan in specific. I also pondered whether the Gallus could maybe have come from the Latin term for a rooster. After all, those early Double Zeta episodes do show the crew of the Argama, plus Gotten, being terrorized by vicious chickens. But no. And it was actually while I was researching a completely different question that the answer, or at least what I believe to be the most plausible answer, struck me. Think back to Nina's research on Kubileia, the Anatolian and later Roman mother goddess from whose name we got the Kubilei. At the time, we commented on how Haman's characterization actually bore a lot of similarities to Kubileia. While Kubileia had priests, devotees who castrated themselves in ecstatic frenzies, but that's neither here nor there. What's really important about those priests is that the term for one of them was Gallus. Now we take as an article of faith here at MSB that a character and the mobile suit that they pilot are inextricably linked. Haman is the Kubilei. Mashima is the Gallus. And a Gallus is a priest of Kubilea. And what is Mashima except an ecstatically devoted priest in the cult of Haman-sama? All right, let's pick up the pace a little and do just a couple more. <laughs> Desert Rommel, so prominent in this episode, almost certainly takes his name from German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, who commanded the Axis forces during the North African campaign of World War II. His performance in that theater won him the nickname The Desert Fox, and a reputation for invincibility that somehow survived that part of the North African campaign where he lost it all. Rommel, the original Rommel, is more myth and legend than historical person at this point. Even within his own lifetime, he found himself wholly absorbed into the Nazi propaganda machine. And in the aftermath of his 1944 suicide, his legend became a tool, a way to justify West German remilitarization, a key figure in the myth of the clean Wehrmacht, and appropriately enough for this episode, an idol for fascist dead-enders clinging to the imagined glory in their propaganda version of the past. At one point during this episode, Judo refers to the Zeon troops hidden under the sand as desert rats, and that's a significant choice. Just as Rommel became the Desert Fox, the scrappy, under-equipped allied forces who fought against Rommel up and down the Mediterranean coast of North Africa earned themselves the nickname Desert Rats. They would lend that name to a 1953 movie about the siege of Tobruk, the movie, The Desert Rats, is a classic war movie, and its depictions of battle in the desert may even have inspired parts of this episode. In particular, the first battle of the film, which shows a German tank column coming in under cover of a sandstorm and running directly into an ambush of partly buried artillery. Very much like when Rommel's bazooka team ambushes Judo in the Zeta. What's more, that movie ends with the titular Desert Rats whittled down to just a fraction of their original strength, dug into a hopeless position in the desert, and holding on long after the point of absurdity. Finally, how about the Bawu, which I alluded to earlier when I was talking about archaic crab kanji? The Bawu, or in Japanese, the Bawu, takes its name from a similarly archaic kanji, this one composed from the character for dragon stacked on top of the character for flight. 
And this one's not even really speculation, because Glemmy's Bawu has that self-same character painted on its skirt armor. The Bawu character is a Hyogaiji, a character from outside the standard list of commonly used characters. To give you a sense of scale here, a person needs to know around 2,000 kanji to pass the highest level of the JLPT, or Japanese Language Proficiency Test. To pass the highest level of the kanji kente, or kanji aptitude test, one would need to read and write some 6,355 kanji. Only about 10% of test takers at that level pass, and we're talking here about fluent Japanese speakers. Well, and generally, like, graduate students and above who need to know a lot of specialized kanji for work reasons. Right. <laughs> However, Comprehensive kanji dictionaries, or at least as comprehensive as they get, list around 50,000 kanji, of which more than 40,000 are these non-standard hyogaiji kanji. They aren't all archaic. Some of them are, in fact, neologisms. But they're united in being obscure, and therefore, I think we can all agree, pretty cool. This flying dragon combination character was probably chosen to reflect the Bawu's ability to transform and divide itself into two separate sections. Just like the character Bawu could be split into dragon and flight, the upper body of the Bawu can become the Bawu attacker, while the lower body transforms into the, I can't believe this is the official name, Bawu Nutter. Now, even though these two characters have only rarely interacted, making the Bawu a combining mobile suit, like an Axis version of the Double Zeta, is a hint that we need to closely scrutinize Glemmy as a counterpoint to Judo. Perhaps their mobile suits reveal some uncomfortable similarities about the two of them. Perhaps, with further study, they will also reveal some of what distinguishes them. And if that sounds like I'm setting myself up to talk more about this in a later episode, it's because I am. Next time on episode 3.24, Lonely Hearts. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 26 and... Girls, girls, girls! What if Isolina, but cool? Kids love mobile suits, it's universal. Life after love. Gelgoog used sand attack. The wild Gundam team's accuracy fell. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, why don't mobile suits have harnesses? Sandstorm, the double Zeta remix. Why is there a pig? And, you mean Pudu was capable of empathy this whole time? Not this whole time, only when it was tragic. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Gundam Double Zeta is fine, I guess, but it would have been an all-time great if they just gave Elle a gold-plated capool. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. That's my wrong kind of opinion right there. <laughs>
specifically Portunus trituber trituberculatus. Specifically Portunus trituberculata. Tritu. This is hard. I shouldn't have put this. <laughs> I shouldn't have put this name in here. Maybe we should. Uh, we uh, cannot control for the weather, unfortunately. No, let's uh, let's take a break. I feel like normally I'm the impatient one, and so it's weird to be sitting here like Tom. Tom, it's Tom. Give it a no. <laughs> More time. <laughs> um, I should say something stronger than sad. Pathetic. Yeah, I've just said pathetic so many oh, times, yeah. but there's a lot of pathetic things going on here. I'm not sure I have a response to that. It's very good. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and this one's not really even speculation because Glemmy's Bawu goes <laughs> outside. <laughs> Drum roll effect. The shh. I wasn't sure if it would be better at the like quiet one where I'm like, Metatextual references on company time. <laughs> or the angry one. Yeah, <laughs> I just, exactly. I'm imagining her like putting a finger to the lips going, but without the visual, maybe the angry one is better. Uh, Captain, the um, vending machines are out of become a monster canned energy beverage again. Can you do? Just get down to the comms room mm -hmm. with that same level of anger that you hit on oh, someone get me another coffee. Mm -hmm. You threw coffee in my face! <laughs> <laughs>